0: Why does cancer exist in every cell? Because that kernel of cancer is not... That's, that's the original genetic programming, not to be a cancer, but to be a unicellular organism. That's what we all evolved from. Therefore, that sort of kernel of cancer exists in every single cell. That's why every cell in our body can do this.
1: Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey everyone, welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I have such an important conversation with you. It is with Dr. Jason Fung. Dr. Fung is a Canadian nephrologist. He is the world leading expert on intermittent fasting and low carbohydrate diets, especially for treating people with type 2 diabetes. He has written three best selling books and he has co founded the Intensive Dietary Management Program. Dr. Fung graduated from the University of Toronto and completed his residency at the University of California in Los Angeles, and he lives and practices in Toronto, Canada. Now, Dr. Fung... uh, On this show, we discuss his latest book called The Cancer Code, which outlines uh, really the evolving paradigms of cancer, uh, how we've gone through sort of this uh, idea that cancer is just like a ball of uh, excess growth, to this somatic somatic mutation theory, to what Dr. Fung proposes, which is a uh, more evolutionary perspective and a return to... Uh, unicellular uh, organism behavior. Um, So we talk about how cancer is really a war on ourselves because because cancer cells are derived from every single cell in our body. We talk about the uh, unicellular, as I mentioned, versus multicellular uh, cooperation. And Dr. Fung proposes that Cancer is essentially the breakdown of multicellular uh, cooperation. We talk about the eight hallmarks of cancer, but we really... get into the dysregulated cellular energetics, meaning that cancer has a tendency to prefer something called glycolysis almost exclusively. And normal cells uh, use something called oxidative phosphorylation, which Jason explains in our conversation. So we talk about oxphos, we talk about glycolysis, we talk about the Warburg effect, and we talk about these sort of hallmarks of cancer, which is that they grow, they are immortal, unlike human cells, Uh, they move around and they use glycolysis and why that's so important. So we talk about this sort of inefficient way of producing ATP, but also this production of lactic acid and what that means. We get into discussing hyperinsulinemia. It's, it's, um, Ties with obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cancer risk. We talk about nutrient sensors, uh, elevated... Insulin, elevated glucose, uh, PI3 kinases, AMP kinase, and mTOR, and how the combination of those, uh, when some are inhibited and some are uh, activated, can go down that growth pathway, um, which is why cancer love many cancers uh, love sugar. Uh, we talk about this idea of the seed and the soil. So the seed, of course, is the genetic propensity towards, um, uh, cancer evolution, uh, the evolution and proliferation, as well as the environment in which those genes live. So this is the seed and the soil, the nature and nurture. Um, and Jason puts out a very compelling argument around reducing our risk, you know, beyond reducing our risk to carcinogens like tobacco, modifying our diet as a proxy for also attenuating cancer risk, uh, and including cancers like like breast cancer, um, bladder, ovarian, pancreatic, lung, etc. This is a fabulous conversation. Uh, Jason is so well spoken, and you are really going to enjoy this. Share this far and wide with anybody uh, who is interested in, of course, longevity, is interested in avoiding the C word, or anybody who might be dealing with this um, now. This is a perfect um, conversation, I think, for uh, everybody to hear. So, with that said, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jason Fung. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms, and here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jason Fung. I'm thrilled to welcome you to Better.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: We uh we're going to be discussing your book today, The Cancer Code, and this is I hi- I highly recommend this book. I, it was such an such a captivating book from beginning to end. There's a historical account of how we used to look at cancer through all of the different, um, paradigms. And I feel like the book in and of itself, um, tries to establish, uh, it's, it's a book that, um, tries to answer what is cancer, which I don't think really has been done, uh, in the past. And it's a, it's a departure from more of the traditional theories, uh, around what cancer is, which might be like unregulated growth or, you know, you just were a part of this unlucky gene pool and that's why, you know, you have cancer and there's some genetic mutation that is predictable that uh, is the reason why this this cancer um, came to be. Um, but one of the things that you point out, and this is maybe where I'd like to start, um, one of the more um, unusual parts of this disease, uh, you use the word vexing um, in the book, is that cancer is something that originally derives from ourselves you know, that it's not a foreign invader, although you do talk about uh, viruses and and whatnot, but rather it's more of an internal recomposition of the cells so that, you know, this war on cancer that we hear is really a war on ourselves in in some way. So maybe let's start by exploring that question, um, which is what is cancer?
0: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. And I, I think Truthfully, that it's like the most fascinating question that nobody really talks about. Like, there's so many interesting things about cancer uh, that are happening. Like, um, you know, if you think about what the disease actually is, it's nothing like anything we treat. It's not an infection, it's not a bacteria, it's not a virus, it's not a blocked blood vessel like heart attacks and, and strokes, for example. Uh, it's not a degenerative disease like Alzheimer's disease. Uh, like it's, it's, it's nothing like that. And what's fascinating about this disease is that it's, so if you have a breast cancer patient, that breast cancer derived from an original breast uh, cell, a normal breast cell, and whether you're sort of uh, you know you live in 2020, uh, in the 2020s, or you live in the 1920s, those two cancers were actually identical. So it's super interesting because they derived separately. Like you could be a world apart, half a world apart, you could be a century apart, and yet those two cells went from a normal breast cell or liver cell or colon cell or whatever and turned into a breast cancer or colon cancer or whatever cancerous cell and yet at this point they look exactly the same like that that's very hard to do because it's like saying you know this person who lives in Japan go paint something and i'll I'll paint something and we paint exactly the same thing like whoa what happened like there's no possible way that can happen yet this is what happens there are thousands of mutations to go from a normal cell to a cancer cell and yet somehow these two independently completely independently turned into the same thing like the odds against that are are you know astronomical like there is no possible way that is a random occurrence um and you know when you think about what is cancer that is you know you have to answer these questions as to why it is like that. And this is what this sort of revolution in understanding, um, we've gone from, you know, sort of the older theories of cancer to this sort of evolutionary model of cancer. Um, Yet nobody really even talks about it. Nobody discusses it. It's been going on. This revolution in understanding has sort of gone on for about, you know, 10 years is picking up steam. It's clearly answering those questions that are so hard to answer about cancer. That is, what is cancer? How is it derived? Um, you know, what causes cancer? What can we do about it? Because all of that depends on understanding what this disease is. That is, if you understand that a um, a bacteria causes an infection, then all of a sudden you know how to treat it: antibiotics. If if you don't know what causes that infection, you might do bleeding or something else, right? Uh, It's a a, a mismatch of humors, and therefore, you're just going to get this crappy treatment because you don't understand the cause. So I think the most important question is, what is cancer? And that's really what this book is about. And it's a a very fascinating, I think, it's a very fascinating story of uh, sort of where we came from And what our understanding is and how that impacts future treatments and what we can do about it. And one of the things that I always think is, again, fascinating is that if you ask somebody, even even an oncologist, what causes cancer, right? They'll say things like, I don't know, we don't know, or it's all genetic, right? It's like, okay, first of all, clearly not genetic. Like, let's take lung cancer. Yes, there are genetic causes of lung cancer, but the majority were caused by smoking or pollutants. Like if you have asbestos causing mesothelioma, uh, you know, so it's like that answer is so wrong. It's, it doesn't even begin. Right. And if you say it's genetic, it's like you, you're, you're, you're way off because we've studied this to death. And, you know, so I cite some studies looking at, okay, well, what part of con- cancer causation is genetic? It's like, 20% or 25%. Well, there's like 70, 75% of cancer causation that we know actually a lot about. So these are called carcinogens. And we have huge lists of carcinogens smoke, asbestos, you know, all kinds of things, soot. Um, and so therefore, it's like once you know that certain things are going to increase your risk, now you have to try and put it together in a sort of satisfactory Uh, story to say why are they causing cancer what does this tell us about how cancer develops and you know uh, there's there's even more interesting questions two very fundamental questions uh, I think that people don't answer which is why can you find cancer in practically every single cell in our body you have cancers of every possible cell including the heart, including the placenta, including, you know, you know, stuff that you just never think about. Yes, sometimes they're rare, but it happens. And even more interesting, why do you find cancer in every single multi-celled animal that you can find? So, you know, even this very, very primitive animal called the hydra, which you study in high school biology. They found cancers in that. So it's extremely primitive. So cancer is not a disease of humanity. It's not a disease of smoking necessarily, because as far as I can tell, these hydra don't smoke. So therefore, you have to answer that question. Is Why is it that you can find this in everything? If you look for the causes of cancer in humans, you're going to miss whole story because cancer runs far further back than humanity from an evolutionary standpoint it goes all the way back to the beginnings of multi-celled life which is i think such an you know, it's such a fascinating story and so many implications. And of course, you know the 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 short story, it's a little complex, but it's it's sort of in that intersection. It was a disease that sort of uh, originated from the, the the transition between unicellular life and multicelled life,
1: yeah. and I, I when I was reading your book, um I was saying to you in the pre chat before we started recording, I just recorded another interview which will be actually coming out after our conversation. Uh, with Dr. David Perlmutter, and he takes a very similar view with uric acid. You know, we used to sort of think uric acid was this just throwaway compound, had nothing to do with you know, met, you know, some of the metabolic mayhem that we're seeing now, like NAFLD, et cetera. And then he looks at it from this evolutionary lens, and I couldn't help but think when you were going, and I, I wanted to, I want to sort of double click on this unicellular, some of the characteristics of unicellular organisms, because I think that'll really fill out the picture for my listeners. But I was thinking about gestation. You know, when you think of, when you look at, you know, a fetus, an embryo, and then its final destination as a, uh, a human baby, when you look at its development over time, it sort of looks like a fish. And then it kind of looks like an amphibian, you know, around six weeks of gestation, we have this tail, like there's a tail <laughs> that's there, gets re- reabsorbed, obviously, and then becomes, you know, the sacral and the coccyx bones. Uh, and we call that the tailbone. Um, and then even when the baby's born, we have primitive reflexes that need to be inhibited when we have more cortical development. And I was thinking about this in, in that context, because I've, you know, I've done a lot of, uh, you know, postgraduate training and like, you know, pregnancy and stuff. And it lines up in the same way that you have this overlay of, 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 uh, programming over millennia. Um, and this is more of a, uh, as a, a, return to more of those primitive or simpler, um, uh, organisms. So I wanted to, um, and you create this compelling argument in the book that cancer is indeed a regression from this multicellular construct to more of a unicellular, um, sort of competition do or die, uh, kind of, uh, uh compound. So I wanted, I, I wondered if you might explain that or expand on that a little bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a great point. You know, the the three famous words of, um, you know, development is um, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which is I always thought very funny. But <laughs> what it means is that the development of the human fetus is, recapitulates the development as we evolve through species, which is um, you know the the idea being that as we evolve as a species you don't sort of erase stuff you actually add on to stuff right and this is very 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 important because it means that original program sits at the at at the very center right it's still always there less yes you can you can you know, put something on top, but you never erase it. It's sort of like computer memory, right? You think you erase something it's never erased. That's why, you know, the FBI goes in and it's like, Hey, that's all that porn you deleted. Right? So the whole idea is that it's always there. It just gets rewritten. It gets covered over, right? It's like, Oh, you suppress certain stuff and you erase certain other stuff. And so this is really important because uh, when we were evolved, we all evolved from unicellular life. So unicellular organisms like bacteria and yeast and so on yeast is a better example because it's a eukaryote which is a little bit more complex uh, and it's a it's a much more complex uh single-celled animal so anyway there's different priorities when you're a single-celled animal that is if you look at uh, what it does, it's basically in competition with all the other cells for survival. So there are certain characteristics. That is, it's, it it really needs to fight off other things. It's going to move around. It's going to grow as much as possible. It's essentially immortal. It will keep reproducing, reproducing, reproducing until you know uh, forever, actually. So if you take a bacteria in a petri dish. You can actually keep growing, 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 growing. It doesn't really matter. You could grow it like a hundred thousand times if you want. That doesn't actually happen in um, in normal cells. There's uh, like if you took a piece of uh, normal breast uh, breast cell and grew it in in a petri dish or in a, in a broth, a nutrient broth. Um, there's only a certain number of times you could do that until the thing just dies, and it's called the Hayflick limit. So. There's a big difference between unicellular unicellular organisms and cells, single cells from a multicellular organism. And it's because when you go from a unicellular to a multicellular environment you actually have to change everything. So that original program has to be suppressed because you can't have the cells fighting each other, right? You, you don't want your liver fighting with your lung. You don't want the liver grabbing all the resources so the, the lung, lung starves, right? You, you just wouldn't survive that way. So you actually have a complete change from uh, sort of this competition sort of survival um. Uh, sort of mindset to a cooperation mindset. That is when cells start to get together, you can't have everybody killing each other because that's what cells do, right? So a bacteria will try and kill another bacteria because it's it's taking its resources, but you don't want that in a multi organism. So what happened from unicellular to multicellular life is that you have this complete change. And if you look at single-celled organisms, there's certain ways that they are very, you know, similar, that is they grow that, uh, you know, they, 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 they always want to grow. Like you don't stop growing. You take a bacteria in a broth, like you get this sort of, you know, it starts to grow, divide. It goes very quickly until the resources dwindle and then it dies and then it, it plateaus off. So it grows. It moves around because it's always looking for sort of new environments where it's going to be better uh, and that kind of thing. And that's quite different than what you see in multi celled organisms. That is, you don't want stuff growing all the time. You don't want your liver just keep growing throughout life until it's the size of a boulder, right? And just push everything out of the way. So you don't want stuff to grow. You don't want things to move around. Like you don't want your liver moving around and <laughs> you know, just going into your, you know, lungs and having a little chat right and then going back home so you don't want things to go around and we have mechanisms there are you know cellular adhesion molecules and that kind of thing which is going to stick that liver in the liver and stick the lung in the lung you just don't want stuff moving around and then there's different cellular energetics so that is simple organisms single-celled organisms use something called glycolysis uh, and and multi-celled organisms tend to use oxidative phosphorylation And so they they have different energetics. So if you look at cancer cells and compare them to normal cells, they're also quite different. That is, if you look at cancer cells, they're different in that one. They are immortal. So they never die, just like a single-celled organism. Uh, You can have those, and there's a great book about Henrietta Lacks, about how they took her cervical cancer cells, and they're still using them for experiments. So they've probably multiplied them like a million times by now, and they're still going way past the Hayflick limit. So they don't do that. The, the cancer cells, they keep growing. They never stop growing, right? That's the real problem. And the third thing is they move around, they metastasize. Well, that's exactly what you see in single-celled organisms. So what you've done is you've taken this cell in a multi-celled organism, and you've sort of reverted it back to its sort of original survivalist You know, uh, sort of uh, programming because that was always there in the first place because remember that's that sort of original core programming that was there you layered all this other stuff on top of that core programming but what you've done in cancer is you've taken this multi-celled animal and you've started removed all this extraneous stuff, and you've left this sort of original programming that now can shine through. So now it behaves much more like a single celled organism. So that liver cancer cell, for example, it's growing. That's the big problem, right? And then we see it on CT it's metastasizing. That's what kills people. And it's, it's taking resources, It's destroying other cells. It's fighting with other cells. And it uses the glycolysis, which is something which is very unusual that we've known about for a long time. Cancer cells use this sort of primitive respiration, which is uh, much different, primitive fermentation, I should say, which is this, this glycolysis, as opposed to what what our nor- the, the liver nor- cell normally does, which is oxidative phosphorylation. And it's strange because oxidative phosphorylation is a much more uh, efficient way to generate energy. That is, it takes glucose, generates like 36 ATP, whereas this sort of more primitive glycolysis generates two plus lactic acid. And people used to think that this was some big mistake. It's, oh, it's just a metabolic mistake. The cancer is just making a mistake.
1: They're just dumb cells. They're just yeah. dumb, yeah. <laughs> and, it's like,
0: <laughs> and it's like, okay, but like 80% of cancers, you see this, this Warburg effect, it was, it was called. They use glycolysis where they're generating less energy per glucose. 80% of cancers or more, I don't know the exact number, but they, they all use this glycolysis even when oxygen is available. So we, all, we always use oxidative phosphorylation unless there's no oxygen because oxygen is necessary. So if we don't have oxygen, all our cells have the intrinsic ability to use this glycolysis. It's a very primitive form. So why is this cancer choosing to use this? And we all said, well, they're just dumb. It's like, well, no, there was stupidity going on, but it wasn't the cancer's stupidity. We just thought, you know, uh, it was just a fluke. It's like, how can it be a fluke (laughs) if every single, like practically every cancer in history is doing the exact same thing? There's a reason. And it probably falls into the same sort of thing, which is that it's a very primitive form of respiration. And there's probably advantages to using it. And it might be related to the lactic acid that it generates. So there's a lot that's going on there. And this is what the evolutionary theory really answers. It answers so many of these really thorny questions. That is, one, why does cancer exist in every cell? Because that kernel of cancer is not. That's, that's the original genetic programming, not to be a cancer, but to be a unicellular organism. That's what we all evolved from. Therefore, that sort of kernel of cancer exists in every single cell. That's why every cell in our body can do this, right? It would make no sense otherwise. Why does every single multicelled animal <laughs> have the ability to get cancer? It's like, because that's that original programming. So it's like, this makes total sense. Um, why do they use glycolysis? Because it's a very primitive form of energy generation. It provides advantages. Lactic acid provides certain advantages for it. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a great theory because it, it's sort of really, really um, ties together a lot of the loose ends that that genetic theory and other theories before it really were not able to answer and the just bad luck sort of idea is is not right and why do cancers all look the same right it's like that's a very important question because two people in a you know in a clinic person a person b those cancers evolve completely independently so why do they look exactly the same like it, it simply makes no sense that they should look the same, right? So the reason they look the same is because they're simply taking off those extra layers. You're getting down to the core of, uh, of what these cells are, which is single-celled organism. So what you're describing is you're taking off sort of the more recent uh sort of genetic changes to our system and getting back to this original core which is again very interesting because if you look at the pathological description of cancer like when when pathologists look at these cells what do they say they say they're primitive cells like this is the language that has been used for the last 80 plus years they're primitive Right. We're talking about the uh, evolutionary process backwards into a more sort of less um less refined sort of way to go. And 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 we know that the the less difference or they're de differentiated, that is they're they're less specialized. And we know that the the less like the the more primitive they look, the worse the prognosis, really because they've gone further into this um sort of transition uh, backwards. So it's, it's a super interesting, uh, story. Uh, and, and the evidence is starting to come out now because, um, it was very interesting because if you look at the genetic studies of cancer and there's millions of different genetic mutations of cancer, um, you can't make head or tails of what's going on. If you just look at what these mutations are, Um, But when you start to break it down, and several studies have done this, where they look not at what mutation it is, they look at the genes that were mutated, and they broke all the genes down into sort of strata. So there's the very recent genes and then there's the very primitive genes and they broke them down into like 14 or 16 sort of different categories. And, they, and, and then they look not at what these mutations are, but when in evolutionary time, these mutations happen in cancer. And what you see is that there's a huge spike. The only, where, the only place that they're different from the baseline is right at that transition between unicellularity and multicellularity, that's where the cancerous genes. That's where it all happens. This transition back from a multicell, like cell, in a multicelled organism, back towards this, this sort of single-celled, uh, survivalist sort of uh, mentality.
1: Yeah, and I, I like the way. And by the way, you are the king of analogies because in the book, you you talk about this idea of like think about you're in like a a city, you know, a, a society, like let's call Toronto, which is my hometown. I know it's your hometown as well. So we have Toronto, which allows for specialization. We have nephrologists and we have chiropractors and we have bakers and we have butchers and we have all of these people who can, you know, electricians and there's water and all that. So we can all specialize in our zone of genius and contribute to society as a whole. And there's rules that you have to follow. Like you can't just go around stabbing people on the street, let's say. But this primitive, uh, this primitive programming would be like Toronto or any city, you know, four or 500 years ago where there was nothing, right? And then you have these layers of evolution, layers of development over and over again, which I think um, is one of the best, it makes sense, you know, like, and you, you justify it with the studies and the, and the citations in the book, but it's the only complete theory that I've ever read. Because as you mentioned, the somatic theory, uh, this, you know, genetic, uh, you know, theory that all cancers are just like unlucky gene pool. Like I remember, and you mentioned this in the book when uh, Angelina uh, Jolie went through a prophylactic double mastectomy because she carried, I think it was the BRCA1 or maybe brca I forget which one uh, that she was the, she held. And she was saying that, you know, this is something like my mom died or my aunt died. I had people who came before me who, you know, had this breast cancer that took them out. And I remember- Uh, I remember feeling, um, like that can't be the whole, yes, I understand the, like the BRCA gene is sort of its own special subclass where it does have a predictive, there is a higher incidence of breast cancer for, um, for individuals who, who carry that. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes and your blood pressure no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to com forward slash Dr. Estima, that's D-R-I-N-K, dot com forward slash D R E S T I M A, and you will get a free element sample pack with any purchase. Um, but there's also this like seed versus soil, you know, kind of argument also to be made, which you make in the book too. And just before we get there, I wanted to just double click on, on lactic acid because you mentioned it. And I in the book, you talk about this idea that, you know, you you mentioned, you know, one uh, molecule of glucose gives us 36 molecules of ATP in regular aerobic conditions. Um, when we're talking, uh, pardon me, with oxidative phosphorylation and then with glyco- glycolysis, um, you said uh, in the book, you know, cancer cells uh, can metabolize 11 glucose molecules to 22 uh, glucose molecules, plus 22 lactic acid. And then the lactic acid, if they want, can be also on a one-to-one ratio converted um, to glucose. So essentially, you know, they they require more, but they can, they can produce um, glucose just as quickly, if not have, uh, produce ATP, pardon me, just as quickly. Uh, it just requires, you know, maybe 10X, like the order of like 10X right. more glucose to do so. And- I wanted to just highlight uh, lactic acid for a moment, because, again, we used to sort of say, "Oh, it's like when you're you know it's a throwaway molecule. It's just this thing that happens when you exercise too intensely." Um, and you give this you you present this argument, which I thought was also very elegant, in that it's also a, you know, in the same way that like, a chemical plant might dump uh, you know, their contents into the surrounding area. Cancer cells also do that. Could you could you talk a little bit about why that might be advantageous in the survival uh, of the cancer cell or the tumor that's growing?
0: Yeah. So this is, I, I I thought this was very interesting too. So, you know, there's always this argument that, so oxidative phosphorylation, which is sort of the most advanced sort of way that we generate energy is one glucose is 36 ATP. So everybody said, well, glycolysis is much worse because you only get two ATP plus lactic acid. Um, But that's only an advantage if glucose is limited, right? Because you can take sort of, much more glucose, right? You can take, you know, instead of getting using one glucose to 36, you could take like, you know, 18 glucose and go to 36. And it's much faster. That's why when you're exercising, you you actually just fall back onto glycolysis. If there's not enough blood supply, uh you go to anaerobic uh you know metabolism, you can generate this ATP very fast. So it's not an advantage if So, so, so there's no difference if you have a ton of glucose. And of course, in this day and age with obesity and overnutrition and stuff, it's, it's, it's not a limiting factor. So therefore that sort of whole advantage of oxidative phosphorylation goes out. But then the question is, you know, okay, so you, so you generate the same amount of ATP. So what, so what's the advantage? There has to be an advantage in order for all those cancer cells to be doing it, uh, right? Because if, if they're doing something and it's working, because cancer is, is thriving and all that. But by definition, it's not stupid, right? Like you might think it's stupid. It's like, but that's because you're stupid, not because that what they're doing is stupid, right? You have to figure out what they're doing. So the lactic acid is the big differentiator if you have the same amount of ATP. So then you have to, you know, so, so then you can approach the question and say, well, why would lactic acid be so advantageous for this cancer cell right it doesn't make sense until you look at it from the evolutionary paradigm which is to say like look these cells have now sort of de-evolved into single cellular organization their primary role is to compete not to cooperate right so just like in toronto you're you we cooperate with each other if you're a survivalist in the woods 100, 500 years ago, you compete with other people. If somebody comes onto your territory, you kill them because they're going to take your resources, right? You're competing, not cooperating. Same thing with this cancer cell. So if you take lactic acid and you dump it onto your neighbor's property, well, you're going to damage your neighbor. So you get ahead in two ways either you get better or you make your opponent worse, right? Either works. So this lactic acid now has several advantageous things. That is, it can actually sort of break down some of the extracellular matrix that's around it, make it easier to metastasize, for example, make it easier to get into the blood vessels, damage the surrounding cells so that you can grow. If you damage your neighboring cells, you can grow into where they are. And um, the lactic acid, some people also think uh, because it generates this inflammation, you actually uh, recruit cells, white cells, that will now release growth factors because if you have damage, so say you cut yourself, you know, cells will come around, they have to release growth factors so you can regrow that skin and regrow that blood vessel. So the cancer cell, it dumps this lactic acid out and then these white cells come around and you know, flood you with growth factor. They love it because they've got all this growth factor to grow. So it's like, oh, this is fantastic. So that lactic acid actually is hugely advantageous for the cancer cell and hugely disadvantageous to the surrounding cells. So, hey, that's all good. No wonder the cancer cell is like, give me more. I need this ATP, but I also love this, this, this lactic acid. And the other thing that was pointed out um, a number of years ago, I think it was in a paper in Science, is that when you um, take oxidative phosphorylation, you actually burn that glucose into pretty much energy. Right? So uh, what comes out is O2CO2. So you've turned this glucose into, into energy, ATP. But if you do it with lactic acid, you not only get energy ATP, but you also have the carbon skeleton that you can build other stuff. So you can transform that into other stuff. So, you know, if you think about building, if you think about growing, you need two things you need energy and you need the stuff to build with. Like you're building a house, you need the energy of the builder and you need bricks. Same thing with cancer cells. If you want to grow, you need that energy. But you also need building blocks, the bricks, to build more cancer cells. Well, you can't get that if you turn all your glucose into pure energy. So therefore, this glycolysis not only gives you energy, but it gives you a more balanced sort of, here's some energy, here's some building blocks. So therefore, it's actually much easier to grow if you're a cancer cell because you've got both of them as opposed to just pure energy. Now you've got to go get your building blocks from somewhere else. So, you know, so, so looking at it from, from this sort of new understanding um, and, you know, I didn't make it up. I mean, it's, it's, it's all there in the literature. It's just that nobody's talking about it, which is why I thought it's such an interesting story. Um, But this is, this is, you know, it makes way more sense than just saying, well, it's just some metabolic mistake that happened. It happened independently in every cancer known to mankind, right? It's like, really that's what you think every cancer just independently decided to do this because and made the same exact mistake that's not even plausible like the odds against that happening are just astronomical yet that's what people would have us believe it's like that's that's hard to believe that that's that's what
1: we thought statistically impossible exactly
0: completely impossible
1: so let's, let's return to that seed versus soil argument. And let's, let's talk about this in the context of glucose and hyperinsulinemia, because one of the things you're very well known for, even before writing this book, of course, is your work around fasting and bringing, um, you know, individuals into a, we'll, we'll call it increasing their insulin sensitivity, bringing them into a, a euglycemic um, uh, state. And you, you link hyperinsulinemia Uh, very well in this book, I know you've done it in in previous ones as well, uh, between cancer uh, risk, uh, particularly in this book, but also type two diabetes and obesity. And we, um, in the book, you talk about certainly carcinogens like tobacco being like a contributor to, um, uh, you know, to lung cancer risk, but the diet in terms of what we eat, also a very big player in terms of Uh, Attenuating or augmenting um, our risk for cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So um, we'll go back to the somatic mutation theory, which is, I think, very important because it's sort of how we all, you know, grew up because that was sort of the major paradigm of cancer. So what happened is that um, starting in the 60s, we started to learn about genes and all this sort of stuff. And the paradigm at the time was, well, cancer is is a disease of excessive growth. Stuff is just growing too fast, and and that was okay. So you had, you know, treatments to 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 kill them, right? So if it's growing too much, then kill them. So surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Um, and in the sixties and seventies, they started to to discover genes and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, hey, so this is a great explanation. If you have a cancer that's growing too much. Well, why is it growing too much? Because you have growth genes that are turned on too high, right? Or you have um, genes that are supposed to stop growth, like brakes, uh, and they're turned down too low, right? So you're either stepping on the accelerator too much or you're sort of, you know, pulling back on the brake too much. And either way is going to lead to excessive growth. So then they discovered... Oncogenes, genes, which are growth genes, and they're normal genes. So keep in mind, despite their name, they're actually normal genes. They just control growth. And there's tumor suppressing gene, which again are normal genes, but their their role is to slow down growth. So so it's like, hey, this this fits perfectly, right? So now you have genes that accelerate growth. You have genes that decelerate growth. If you have a mutation in this gene and you turn on the you know the the accelerator too high, you're going to get it. Or if you turn down the brakes too low, you're going to get it. And therefore this coalesced into this so-called somatic mutation theory which is that this is what cancer is so it's not sort of invalidating the previous paradigm it's sort of explaining it at one level deeper right so why are they growing too much well it's the genes so they discovered this and you know they started to develop treatments very successful and so we got to the stage in the 1990s where we thought okay well this is the answer right so you have a gene mutation Therefore, too much growth. You find the gene, you fix that gene, you cure the cancer. So then you had the Human Genome Project, and we thought, okay, well, now the next step is to map all the genes in the human body. And they did that in the 2000s. And then they did an even more ambitious program, which was called the Cancer Gene Atlas. Um, And instead of sequencing one person's uh, gene, they took like 30,000. 30,000 plus cancer samples and sequenced them all and said, okay, well, let's take, you know, a thousand colon cancers, figure out the mutations, figure out the key mutation, and then we'll develop a way to block it. Sounded pretty reasonable, but clearly it didn't, it, it, it wasn't enough. So then we got this sort of two hit hypothesis, became a three hit hypothesis, which means that, well, one gene mutation was enough. What you had to have was like a couple of mutations, right? So uh, maybe two or three, and then that was fine. So that was the sort of prevailing idea at the time. What they found instead was not two or three mutations. Each colon cancer, for example, might have like a hundred mutations. And even worse, um, if you took two patients, patient A, patient B, same looking colon cancer, patient A had a hundred mutations, patient B had a hundred completely different mutations. It's like, okay, that's complete madness now because you simply cannot give 100 medications to patient A and develop another 100 medications for patient B and another 100 for patient C, right? It just isn't going to work. So the whole thing was it didn't work. And there wasn't a few mutations. We thought we'd find like a couple of mutations because that's what the early studies found. Uh, You know, at one count, I think there was like six million different mutations. So it's like, okay, (laughs) this is not that useful. Every single cancer has like 100 different mutations. Uh, You know, so you, you might have a cancer like a liver cancer and it was different. Like there, You'd find different mutations within that cancer. You found different mutations in the sites of the metastasis. You had different mutations recurred. It was completely, so, so the genetic sort of view of things didn't go in our way. So this was by the 2000s, we thought, okay, we're going to cure cancer. By the 2010s, it was clear that this entire paradigm had completely failed. What we thought we were going to find was completely wrong, but it's still sort of you know, in the public consciousness, it was sort of this cancer is a genetic disease because that's what we thought in the nineties. And this is what people still talk about. Hey, it's a genetic disease. It's like 90% of the story, right? It's just unlucky. You have unlucky genes. It's like, okay, but that wasn't the case at all. And this is what I mean by the seed in the soil, because if you think about it, cancer is an interaction between what you have, the genes, those so genes certainly play a role. I'm not saying they don't, but the environment that they're in also plays a role. Like if you have a seed, for example, you put it in, you know, good soil it grows, you put a seed, same seed, right? Same genetic material, put it in the desert. It doesn't grow. Right. So it's an interaction between the the, the genetic material and the environment that you go on. And, and we knew this, we knew this for a long, long time because you could take a woman in Japan, move her, to the United States and her risk of breast cancer would skyrocket. So it wasn't the genetic material because it's the same Japanese woman. So, you know, the Japanese woman in Japan, Japanese woman in San Francisco, you know, within two generations, even as she's marrying Japanese people, so the genetic material staying the same, her risk of breast cancer was almost triple. So therefore, there's clearly a genetic uh impact and that's what's really important because if there's a genetic if it's all genetic like we used to think then yeah it's just you know it's just bad luck but if it's environmental now you need to figure out what in the environment is causing it so you can reverse it because the promise is huge if you tripled your risk going from japan to the united states that means if you figure it out you could cut your risk by two-thirds by going, taking that, the United States and going back to a more sort of Japanese lifestyle, whatever that was. So of course, when you look at the, uh, the soil, if you will, the environmental impact, tobacco smoking was the number one and still is the number one sort of environmental risk factor. And when they break it down, they do these things that look at percentages and they say it's about 30, 35% of the risk of cancer from an environmental standpoint, Uh, is smoking everything else? So, there's two things that were huge smoking was one, diet was also 30 to 35 percent, and all the rest of the stuff we talk about, like genetics, was like five percent. This is attributable risk, so five percent, and like chemicals was like two percent, and viruses was like two percent, right? So, everything was like negligible except for smoking and for diet. Well, this is incredibly interesting because what part of the diet actually leads to risk of cancer So people had lots of theories. First, they thought it was fiber, dietary fiber. Turned out to be not true at all. Then they thought it was dietary fat. So they had this huge study, the Women's Health Initiative, where they put people on a low-fat diet. Didn't lower the risk of colon cancer or breast cancer barely at all. So it wasn't dietary fat. It wasn't dietary fiber. Then they thought it was a vitamin deficiency. So we tested practically every vitamin that you can think of, right? A, B, C, D, B, omega-3s everything. Nothing, nothing, nothing came out, right? In fact, some of the vitamin supplements actually cause an increased risk of cancer, but that's a whole other story. Um, But it turns out by 2003 that the answer started to become apparent. So it wasn't until very recently that we started to understand, hey, there's a risk factor here in the diet, and this is it, Right, It was obesity. We didn't know that before. 2003, they did this huge study in the 70s called the Cancer Prevention Study Two. It was so big that they needed a million people just to tabulate all the data. It wasn't a million people in the study. It was a million people just to tabulate all the data. It was such a massive study. And they just followed people over time. They sent them questionnaires and then eventually they switched to like online stuff um and 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 they looked at a whole bunch of risk factors and stuff and what they found was that obesity was clearly a risk factor type 2 diabetes turned out to be a huge risk factor too and the whole um thing was becoming more apparent because of course there was this obesity epidemic and the question therefore became you know first they they now of course there's a number of cancers that are actually designated as obesity-associated cancers. Among them, breast cancer and uh, colon cancer. So that's really important, but it wasn't just that. It was the sort of hyperinsulinemia that you get along with obesity that seemed to be important because even if you look at people, that are normal weight, those with a very high insulin level tended to get cancer much more than those with low. That's at the same body weight. And, and, and diseases like type 2 diabetes, where you also have very high levels of insulin, were also associated with increased risk of cancer. So that's not to say that that explains everything, right? There's lots of people, thin people who get breast cancer and so on. So again, you know, I don't want people to get the idea that it's you know it's all their fault or whatever right but it's an interaction between the genes the environment the hyperinsulinemia and um you know and 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 that's what it is so it's it's this sort of the seed and the soil idea which is a much again a much more complete idea than this sort of somatic mutation theory which is that oh it's all genetic bad luck that you got cancer there are definitely cases where that's true a lot of pediatric cases are mostly genetic right but you know, as you get older and older, it becomes more and more likely that it's a a lifestyle issue uh, as opposed to to the other. So that's sort of where things got. And then, you know, um, to tie it into the hyperinsulinemia, then you have to ask the question, why is hyperinsulinemia really such a risk factor? And it comes down to the entire uh, notion of what nutrient sensors are. That is, our body contains nutrient sensors. So your body is very smart. Um, it will only grow if you have enough nutrients. So if you take somebody um, and uh, you, know, you don't give them enough to eat, the, their, their, their growth is stunted. We know that. Then you feed them well and they will catch up right and and it's because our body knows when food is coming in so it's a survival mechanism if you have nothing to eat your body does not want to grow if you have nothing to eat and your body grew anyway you die because you couldn't support that amount of growth so your body very smartly retards its growth you get growth retardation and you get very small short people and so on so if you have too much on the other hand then your nutrient sensors are going sort of full bore, which is the same signal. So, you know, it's interesting because insulin is one of the primary nutrient sensors. It tells our body nutrients are available. If you go back in evolutionary time, insulin is not a nutrient sensor in most animals, like primitive animals. It's actually a growth factor. So you use, your body actually uses the exact same signaling molecule for nutrients as for growth, You've, that's how closely they're tied together. So, therefore, if you have a disease where you have sort of excessive growth, well, giving them more insulin is just like giving fertilizer right? It, it allows stuff that wants to grow to grow. It's like sprinkling fertilizer, you know, on a bare patch. You want grass to come up, but the weeds come up because that's what grows the fastest. And there's actually other ones. There's uh, one that's much more recently developed, which is called mTOR. And mTOR is another nutrient sensor that is more specific for protein. In fact, if you block mTOR, that actually is used as a cancer drug in some cases. And then a third one called AMPK, which is another nutrient sensor in the body, uh, is impacted by metformin, which is why in certain studies, they see that metformin, which sort of down regulates that whole pathway, might actually play a role in reducing cancer recurrence and so on so again very very interesting which gets back to sort of um well if you don't use drugs well the other way to impact nutrient sensors is through your diet so if you eat foods that are sort of lower in insulin if you're doing more fasting where you're going to reduce that you're going to reduce the effect of uh, the growth, you're going to reduce the growth because you're reducing your nutrient sensors. And that's, you know, and we're actually a far long way from having the research to really back that up. But clearly there is an association between hyperinsulinemia obesity and cancer and that's what it comes down to so if, therefore at a very very basic level if you can prevent the obesity presumably you're going to reduce the risk because those cancers are obesity associated cancers
1: beautifully said and in the book you talk about pi3 kinase as well which is very sensitive to glucose uh, we had dr robert lustig on the show and he, he was sort of like PI3 kinase is like a bouncer, you know, it just depends on how many people are at the door and it sort of swings open depending on how much glucose there is. Uh, you mentioned AMP kinase, which is again, you know, one of the things, if you want to kill AMP kinase's activity, it like there's glucose, right? Sugar uh, is one of the things that will impair that activity. And then mTOR, uh, we've talked about this in the context of uh, protein signaling. Uh, Dr. Ben Bickman would also suggest that Glucose as well is a a potent, um, activator of, of mTOR. And when you sort of take all of these things in aggregate, you know, if you are activating PI3 kinase, you have a lot of glucose, the door swinging open, AMP kinase is inhibited. And then you have mTOR, which is activated. This is this sort of combination, if you will, of nutrient sensors is leading down that pathway uh, towards growth. It, you know, whether or not you're in the presence of oxygen, like nobody cares or the cells don't care, I should say. Um, and, and so as you were mentioning, you know, it's not, you know, that you had the carbohydrates that one day that gave you the breast cancer. Um, it is as you, as you, uh, so eloquently explained the, this, this, uh, marriage between the seed and the soil, like the, the gene and what's above the gene. Um, but it is, it is important to think about, you know, and a lot of longevity experts talk about um, restricting protein. You know, and I, you know, in, in my book, I talk about sort of cyclical protein consumption, like sort of pulling back mTOR and then allowing it. You know, in the presence of things like resistance training, because muscle growth is is very important for longevity and a whole host of other things that we don't even have time to get into now. But we we want to activate mTOR. Um, let's say, uh, you know, if we have if we are resistance training. You want mTOR to be activated. You want to be giving yourself some protein and some carbohydrates, let's say, to help with that um, anabolic growth of the muscle and preventing that catabolic destruction of it with the carbs. But always doing that and not having the output to sustain it is what I think you're, you're talking about, where insulin is Uh, As you said, you know, a substrate, you know, brings the glucose in so that the cell can use it as a substrate to produce energy, but it's also involved in cell proliferation. So bringing your insulin levels down to a healthy, you know, I always like them, you know, under five, if I, you know, if I can, we're talking about labs, but um, I think bringing, you know, paying attention to your glucose. So whether that's a CGM or, you know, you engage in regular fasting, Uh, or bringing your insulin into like increasing your insulin sensitivity and bringing like pulling down on that glucose, I think is a great strategy for anybody. And, you know, as you mentioned in, you know, you, you wrote in, in uh, uh, one of your fasting books, like one of the beautiful things about fasting is it's diet agnostic. Like you can, you can do, it doesn't matter if you're vegan or paleo or keto or whatever, you can still fast, which I really, really appreciate and love.
0: Yeah, I think that's important because it's actually really hard to change somebody's diet, like especially if they're older, right? If somebody's been eating sort of noodles and rice for the last 70 of their 71 years of life, it's really, really hard to change that all of a
1: sudden. They're not going to be carnivore. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're not going to do carnivore. Yeah,
0: it's, it's, it's. it's it's like it's so hard that it, you're almost beating your head against the wall so it's sure they might do it for a year but then they're gonna wind up falling back into their old habits because they're gonna be like oh i really miss that food that i grew up on right and everybody knows that right so then they go back to the foods they grew up on so if you're used to that foods then there's still something you can do about it which is the fasting and i think that you know this is one of the reasons I think that this sort of paradigm of cancer, this evolutionary paradigm is so much more powerful than the previous one, this sort of somatic mutation theory, is that it can actually expand to incorporate all of this. It explains all of this, because if you were to say, well, you know, why? If you, if you were to say, well, it's all about genetic mutations, right, Then then you'd say, well, how does being obese, it's, it's not mutagenic, it doesn't cause gene mutations. So why is it such a powerful risk factor? It's like, because you're, it, the gen, genes is only this part of it, right? We used to think that genes are like 95% of the story when in fact, they're probably about 25% of the story. Still an important part of the story for sure, but still the minority, right? There's just this huge other piece which you can now explain because it's the soil, not the seed, right? So all these, all of these things like the, the the carcinogens that we can be exposed to, whether it's ionizing radiation or anything, uh, and 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 diet, and all of these things. And the other thing I, th- I thought was very very interesting is it explains why any chronic damage to cellular damage actually can cause cancer. So it's, it's really interesting because you have a treatment for cancer like chemotherapy and almost all chemotherapies are also carcinogens. So at the same time you're treating cancer, you actually can cause cancer. We see this all the time. You get second secondary uh, malignancies. So it's a well-known thing. It's like, and, and so with the genetic thing, you say, well, why would that be? Or you have something like Barrett's esophagus, which is the chronic inflammation or ulcerative colitis, which is chronic inflammation. And it's like, why is that so cancerous? Like, why does it cause so much cancer? Like you have not changed the genes. The genes are actually not changed in ulcerative colitis. But what you've done is you've sort of gotten this chronic damage, which has forced this cell to sort of evolve into a more sort of survivalist cell. And as it, be, as it, as it fights for its survival, it's gonna peel off all these sort of more recent, sort of genetic programs and get to that sort of survivalist core, right? Because if you're a very specialized cell, you can't survive, right? If you're if if your main skill in life is doing, you know, tax audits, you're not gonna survive in the wild all that long. You have to be have this sort of survivalist training. So that's what the cell is doing, it's getting back. And it explains so much more. It explains how you can incorporate all these other things that we know are important for cancer into this sort of unified um, theory. And that, that, that's, it's, it's, it's sort of why I think it's so interesting because it now opens up all kinds of new and interesting possibilities. And I pointed out a few in the book. One is immunotherapy, of course, which is sort of a huge new area. Um, you know, Immunotherapy has nothing to do with genetics, of course. It's all about the immune system um, because you know, the cancer has almost evolved into a new species and everybody thinks that's ridiculous. How can you evolve into a new species? It's like, that's because our immune system sees that cancer as a new species. It sees it as foreign, right? So you have natural killer cells that, you know, you don't have to program that will kill these cancer cells on site because it's seen as a foreign invader. So we, those cells, which are derived from a normal cell have evolved. They've changed. They've become a new species because that's the way we see it. So it's, it's a super interesting, it opens up the possibility of immunotherapy, opens up all these other things like, you know, instead of giving maximally tolerated therapy, which is this conventional way of doing chemotherapy, right? So chemotherapy, you, the, the, the standard way of doing it is give as much chemotherapy as you can before you kill the patient. That's basically all we did. Um, But if you look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, that might not actually be the best way. You might actually do better by just giving enough chemotherapy to suppress it because you'll never actually kill it because the cancerous seed is in all of our cells. And by doing it more, you're actually pushing more. You're, You're actually increasing the selection pressure. On on the other cells, which is why those chemotherapy cells, uh, those chemotherapies can all lead to secondary malignancies. Same with radiation, you get secondary malignancies. Surgeries, you get recurrences at surgical sites because it's that actual damage that's being done that's now providing the selection pressure from an evolutionary, which is an evolutionary um, construct, It's providing the selection pressure to become that sort of survivalist single-celled organism.
1: And this is, you know, this would explain bacterial uh, resistance to antibiotics. You know, there's been some uh, doctors who have critiqued over-vaccination to viruses as, co- you know, viruses are going to mutate in that selection pressure, that natural selection pressure as well. Um, gosh, I, like, I, you know, I'm looking at the time. I, I, I want to respect your time. We didn't, I wanted to talk about metastasis, which, you know, fascinated me around this idea that this is one of the first things that the cancer cell does. Oh. Um, we will have, we'll have to save it for, um, for another time, but anybody that's listening here, this is such a fascinating read, highly recommend. And just for, uh, for people to learn more about you and some of your offerings, can you, where, where can people find you? Is it online? Is there programs that you offer? Where can, where can people find you and your work? Yeah. So you can,
0: uh, my books, um, you know, the cancer code, the obesity code, the diabetes code, they're all available sort of on Amazon. And um, you can also do, uh, follow me on Twitter. That's at Dr. Jason Fung. I also have a YouTube channel, which is uh, Jason Fung. And there's uh, lots of videos about fasting and diabetes and so on. So check those out if you want uh, if you want more information.
1: Wonderful. Well, it's just been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your presence today and for the wisdom that you've shared uh, with me and my audience. It's just been a, just a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.